Greetings, filmmakers and film buffs, and welcome back to Framin' the Shot, the show that takes a deep dive into the many storytelling and cinematic elements that make or break a film. Today, we perhaps step ankle-deep into a powerful topic that may never be fully explored. Movie magic. What is it? What does it mean? And what are the many forms it can take, if it means more than one thing? To help me explore this question, I've brought along my best friend and fellow SCAD graduate, Cotton Chivarelli. Like my previous guest, Chris Horton, Cotton is a screenwriter with a deep love for story structure, character motivation, and emotional drama. And more than anyone else I know, he makes a concerted effort to see as many noteworthy films as possible each year. So it's always a treat to share my thoughts with him. With that said, I present to you Episode 3. What is movie magic? So, uh, first topic of the day. Oh, are you recording? Yep. Oh. It's already going. Very cool. First topic of the day was going to be, what is movie magic? Mm -hmm. But more specifically, what is movie magic to you and me? Um, Because it's a very subjective concept, I'm sure. Yeah. And some people don't necessarily know how to describe what it is, but clearly it's a, it's a term that means something because it, it has existed for a while. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure what, you know, old Hollywood would call movie magic, but mm-hmm. I think that's where the term was coined is somewhere in maybe, I don't know if it was in the silent era, but as far as I know, it was, it might've been something coined in the thirties once we had mm-hmm. sound pictures. Yeah. All about the the extravagance of the the movie musicals which were always large during that time mm-hmm. well okay so first off i think anyone listening is automatically going to disagree with whatever we decide movie magic is because you're right it's such a broad topic but to the point it's to the point where i think everyone's idea of it is different in its own way you were saying, though, and I didn't know that it was coined back in the golden era of Hollywood, specifically. I didn't know it was coined then. Um, it very likely was, because I've, I've heard it mentioned in various uh, documentaries by people who lived back then. It, mm-hmm. uh, definitely in the 70s, they were using the term, like people from the old Hollywood system were using the term. Mm-hmm. I think what it was the it was the idea that you know you get a bunch of people together and it looks so chaotic and so crazy and you're spending all this money it's just cuz making a movie especially back then was a mess cuz in a lot of ways they didn't know what they were doing so it was such this mess but somehow it would come together into this live art form and i think that was movie magic that from chaos could be brought this amazing thing and i i that would be my idea of where it may have come from if i were to imagine it because if you look at like some stories and even documentaries on like the first really big budget movies that were made like they didn't know what not only like i said not only did they not know what they were doing there were days where they would just sit around not do anything because they couldn't figure out what to do next sometimes in some cases they were rewriting the script on set Granted, that still happens now sometimes, but they were just rewriting it there or they'd have problems with actors or sets or lighting. You know, it's 
so it was such a chaotic scenario that, of course, the only way you can describe, <clears throat> excuse me, getting anything out of that is magic, you know? So that's, I guess, sort of what I'd have to say about that, I guess. But now I think it has evolved to a feeling the audience members get when watching a movie they really like. Like, I think there's a moment, and I'm, I am strictly speaking in the sense when you're in a movie theater, because yes, in today's day and age, you can watch a movie anywhere, on your phone, on your TV, wherever you want. But I think the term movie magic has sort of evolved into this way an audience member can get when they're watching a movie in a, in a theater and they are totally entranced by the movie. Like, they almost forget that they're in the theater. They're just watching the movie, and they're, they're sucked in completely. And I think for a lot of people, that's the idea of movie magic in the 21st century. So it has changed, I would say. I think you're right. It has changed. Yeah, there's, there's dozens of stories of people who became filmmakers who say that the, their first time seeing a movie was that moment where they thought, hey, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. I could do that one day. I do think for me personally, I went through a couple of phases. It was first, uh, I saw as a little kid Star Wars on the big screen. It was like, I guess, some anniversary thing and they were bringing it back. It was the special editions. Yeah. And my dad took me out of school to go see them. And I remember when I walked out, I just knew that this was something that was going to be a part of the rest of my life. I just knew not just Star Wars, but movies were very important to me. And then for a while, I interpreted that as I want to be an actor. And for a while, I really pursued acting really all the way up until I'd say between eighth grade and right before high school is when I sort of stopped doing that. Um, and then I sort of, for me, and I think a lot of directors have this, they sort of have a second experience with filmmaking or multiple not just a second but a lot of directors you were saying how they see a movie for the first time and that like with a snap of their fingers they instantly know they want to make movies and for some I think that's the case but I think for a lot it was a few movies they saw over time that made them realize that this is what they wanted to do even if they were young directors because I know for me you know, Star Wars was the movie, all three of the originals were the movies that made me realize, as I said, that I love movies. But it wasn't until I saw Pan's Labyrinth on the big screen that I knew I had to actively pursue trying to make movies. And that was the first time I really tried to make something, as terrible as it was, was after I saw that movie. And I really think a lot of directors don't talk about that second moment they had. Because as kids, we have a lot of interests. You know, we want to do, we want to be firemen, we want to be rock stars, we want to do everything and everything, anything and everything under the sun. So I think a lot of filmmakers have had multiple, I don't know what the word would be, in, I guess inspirational moments. And they just talk about the one as a little kid. Because when they look back of it, at it, yes, that was the first time, but not the only time, I guess. Some of these subjects, I'm not sure if we will have a lot to say, but I think the 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 point I wanted to have with this was what um, what can 
movie magic refer to. So we should go into what elements of a film affect us in a profound way. Because I will tell you, in my case, when a movie really impresses me, I will get a shock of cold energy right up the back of my neck and into my head and it will swirl around because it might be the endorphins are just exploding at that moment. I think for me, it depends on the genre of the movie. How, if it's a good version of that movie, how I'll react or how I'll feel. Like if it's a really good drama, I know this sounds stereotypical, but I'll like tear up a little bit if it's a really good, powerful, emotional drama. Um, but if it's a good, if it's a good action movie, it will just draw me in, in every possible way. Like I'll just be sucked into the movements of the characters and the camera I'll be more tech I guess I'll be more technically drawn in drawn in by the technical aspects of the movie and then you know similar it's it applies similarly similarly to uh different genres but in slightly different ways like a sci-fi movie has a similar effect as an action movie but obviously I understand that it's a science fiction movie it's even it's even more poignant when you you look at animation because there I mean it, the the cells the the cells that I actually have on my wall behind you when you actually look at a cell like that you realize oh now I get it <laughs> because you're not just drawing multiple drawings to get movement out of pencil uh, in sequence you are sketching these characters out you are drawing them frame by frame. You have other people filling in the gaps between those frames. You have people inking these frames onto celluloid plastic. And then you have to have an entire staff of people painstakingly painting within the lines every color that needs to be on this page for every single f***ing frame. Has an animator ever single-handedly done a single feature movie by themselves? No. It's never happened? Miyazaki is the only director I'm aware of who has personally checked every frame of one of his films. But that's on the... the After someone did it. Yes, that, okay. that is the hand-drawn uh, cleanup stage of the drawing process before it's inked, before it's painted. The last one he did that on was Mononoke. Oh, really? So he's, he hasn't done that for a while. No, because he, he simply can't. He, he painstakingly checked every frame of Mononoke and previous films before that. He but didn't do that for Spirited Away? I don't believe so. Oh, wow. I distinctively remember that, them mentioning that in the the documentary, like the Japanese mm -hmm. uh televised documentary for Mononoke mm -hmm. that he did that. Wow. The only time I've ever heard of it, and it wasn't for a movie, and maybe you can tell me if you've ever heard of this, if it's true or not, is that Seth MacFarlane for Family Guy did most of the work himself 
for the first three episodes of Family Guy. I I've could, not heard of that. I thought I heard this somewhere, and it's why actually the first three episodes look a little rough. Um, because someone told me he did most of the work for the first three episodes himself. That would make sense. Which because he he is knew how to. It's just his. I don't think his animation skills improved much from his uh, student films, which were the basis for uh, Family Guy. Mm-hmm. And also, to go on that topic real fast, there is a short on Cartoon Network that you can find. And it is basically, you are witnessing an earlier version of Family Guy, but for kids. Right. Have you ever seen this? I'm pretty sure I have. Is it? It's the guy and the dog, right? Yes. Yes. That's what I'm also referring oh, to. Okay. Yeah. His student. His his student film became that cartoon short on Cartoon Network, and okay. then became Family Guy because he just rearranged the elements. Okay. I didn't know that, but like, it is kind of trippy to watch that because you're like, oh, there's Brian, there's Quagmire, there's Lois, there's everybody. All the characters, most of them, are there in some way. Unrelated, but thought it was funny. Um, but now you make a good point about animation where that is the truest form, quote unquote, of movie magic. Of your your later definition. Yeah, there. my later definition, I should say. Because even now I'm just saying like, oh, I just I just gave it a specific definition. But of my later definition, yes. Um because again, if you if you look at those cells the paint does not go outside the lines at all. And you have to paint these on the back. So you have to layer the paint in the order that the objects on the character's costumes are positioned. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a bow tie, like on that one back there, you have to paint the bow tie first, then the shirt, and then the jacket. Mm-hmm. And you probably have to paint the hands first, then the jacket. Oh, God. Or it depends on... it. Again, it really depends on the order because you have to go backwards. Yeah. Um, and you have to make sure that the paint is consistent. So you have to get the right mixtures and you have to have large amounts of them so that the paint is negligibly uh, the same the whole process through. So nothing uh, blinks or pops to a different color. Because mm. some lower, really low budget anime will have that issue where... That that the color of the head does not match the color of the arms, hmm. but of course we don't paint on cells anymore. That went out in um, at least by the year two thousand, the Japanese stopped doing that. Hmm. Uh, we quit doing it. At least in feature film animation, we quit doing it by the early nineties because I believe the Little Mermaid might have been the last one. Oh wow! Or if it. W- no, no. Um, yeah, it actually might have been the last one because the Rescuers Down Under was the first one to paint uh, their animation digitally, which was after Little Mermaid. So I think they painted the Little Mermaid prior to that. Oh my God, painting that movie, dear Lord. And then television animation, because it was all outsourced to uh, Taiwan and China they would have still been painting on cells up through, yeah, probably 2002 at the very latest. Hmm. Okay, so along with what I said about, you know, the the endorphins going off in my brain, I wanted to give some specific examples of what 
what uh, causes that because I've realized that it is a very specific criteria of things that have to be in a film for it to do that. Um, I, th I wrote it down. Here we go. Movie magic for me is the perfect blend of spectacle, story, musical score, and character context. Which uh, basically means that the scene has to have incredible visuals, which can either be in the form of an action scene or can be in the form of, you know, wide shots of a landscape moving by at some particular pace. Because uh, it, it can be a slow scene as well as a fast, energized scene. Uh, the purpose of this scene has to serve the story for some reason. So if we are just looking at landscapes, then it has to be for the benefit of the characters, uh, not just the audience, I suppose. It, it has to... Um, it can't just be there for the hell of it. The character context... Uh, if, if the scene is really meaningful to the characters, then it is more meaningful to me as an audience member. If it's something that is affecting them or something that is allowing them to fulfill either some sort of destiny or to fulfill a, a character conflict that they're having where they become a better person because of this moment or because they're doing something heroic, then that adds to it. But the most pivotal thing is the music score. If the, the score in this moment is either extremely beautiful or extremely exciting or it, uh, has a very strong theme where we're using a theme tune and we're building it up to some sort of ultimate combination you know like if it started out as these softer quieter versions for the beginning of the film and then this is the big version where we bring out all the instruments mm. then that that is the it's not quite just the cherry on top it's like all the whipped cream on top of it and all the extra flavor crystals and all that and I wrote down, I think this is like 10 examples, okay. most of which you should know. Jack Sparrow's introduction in the first Pirates movie. Okay. Because there you're watching him float up on the boat, and he's on the mast as it's sinking into the, mm -hmm. into the dock. It is his introduction. It, it describes his character for us extremely well, where he just goes with the flow. It doesn't matter what's happening to him. He will try to look his best and just, you know, take to it like he knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And then the theme that is very exciting. And yeah, a lot of these moments are specifically because the music, because I, I bought the songs mm -hmm. that are in these scenes a lot of the time. Um, Kida's transformation into the spirit vessel in Atlantis, the Lost Empire. Okay. This is where she walks out into the middle of that pool of water, rises up, and all the stone heads of the her ancestors imbue her with the energy of the crystal. <laughs> um, the march of the cards from Disney's Alice in Wonderland. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the whole procession of cards marching in all these different color-changing shots. That's always been uh, deeply exciting to me because of how well it's choreographed. Hmm. Sophie and Howell's Skywalk in the opening of Howl's Moving Castle. Okay. 
for a much more recent one, um, Thor forging Stormbreaker and traveling to Earth before he yells, Bring me Thanos! Because <laughs> that was like the exciting moment in that film when he finally lands and just starts wrecking everything. Yes. For something much, much quieter, there is the Tomorrow is Another Day sequence from The Rescuers. It's that uh, soft ballad that plays over the two mice flying off to their main destination. Okay. Okay. Mrs. Brisby raising her home from the mud with the the stone in The Secret of Nim. That's the climax. Okay. I have actually never seen The Secret of Nim. I or, swore you had. Yes, I, sorry. I was thinking of a different movie. I have, I have. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I was thinking of um, something else. I have seen that movie. <laughs> sorry. I was like, because I couldn't remember that part, and I'm like, what? I'm sorry. I have seen that movie. I've seen Secret of Nim. Um, that actually brought me, when I saw that movie, that put me down an interesting rabbit hole about the uh, rat utopia experiments, but that's a separate discussion. Mm-hmm. And Which not just down the rabbit yeah, hole also covered. Yes, I later saw that much later on. But I, when seeing Secret of Nim, I always thought the real story about that would make an interesting movie. Also, but yeah. that's a whole separate thing. You ever seen Balto? Yes, I've seen the first one, and then I've seen part of. How many Baltos were there? Three. Okay. There's one, I know I saw the original, where the original is the one where they're trying to get the medicine for the little girl, right? Okay. And where they introduce Balto and everything else. This, Which is the one where it's like all Native American myths, and at one point they're dealing with like a totem pole. That's the second one. That's like, okay. That's the third one is so unexciting that I barely remember it, but the second one is actually has something going for it. I liked it well enough. In Balto, there's many magical moments in that, but the one in particular is when Balto encounters the white wolf and he re-embraces his wolfness mm-hmm. and they both howl towards the sky. Oh, yeah. Who made Balto? The great-grandson of H.G. Wells. Really? Literally. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it sounds weird when he when I actually say it, but that's true. Uh, Simon Wells has he done anything else good? Or uh, sorry, that's a separate discussion. But no, we can go into it. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know how he got into animation. I'd have to look that up specifically, but I oh. I can see what he's done. Yeah, I'm gonna look it up now. Cause yeah, and yes, by the way, that is a great scene with the White Wolf. Okay, so um. You remember the Puss in Boots film I had you watch? Yes. Phil Nibblink. That was the yeah, director of Phil, that. Yeah, I remember Phil Nibblink. Okay. Remember I created the awards, the Nibblinks. Yes, which we, we never did anything with. Um, so oh Sim, Simon... Just, sorry, I just came across a stuffed Balto. Yes. I didn't know that was a thing. Simon Wells and Phil Nibblink co-directed uh, an American tale, Fievel Goes West. Okay. And Steven Spielberg would have uh, put them both on that job. They both directed We're Back a Dinosaur Story. Hmm. And then Simon went off on his own to direct Balto. He also directed The Prince of Egypt. 
Prince of Egypt is an amazing animated movie. It it makes me sad that DreamWorks didn't do more. Oh, two D movies. Hold on. So it looks like Prince of Egypt had three directors, including Brenda Chapman, who, uh, let's see, she co-directed Brave. Oh, well. That I do remember. Um, It's interesting how animated films require more than one director. I still don't exactly know why, because they often do. Yeah, they often do. But And then like you see the ones that don't, and you don't understand why so many of them still need it. Yeah, because there's because there's so many teams. Yeah, you, you got um the team behind Treasure Planet. They've they've done like ten Disney movies in their career together. Yeah. So yeah, the Balto moment. There was that. The asteroid field chase from Empire Strikes Back. Okay. And then there's a couple of moments from the original Star Trek movies, but the one that I could. Uh, immediately pull out as a, a full thing was uh, Kirk and crew stealing the Enterprise to rescue Spock mm. in the third film. That's a good moment. See, I'd put an emotional moment in there when Kirk's son dies. as like a emotion, the same movie magic moment, but for a sad reason. Does that tend to, aff- did that affect you in that way? For some reason it did a little bit. I think... Kirk's son's death, even though it kind of just happened. Granted, I saw it when I was a kid the first time, but I remember the first time watching it being like, oh my God, they killed his son. Like that was, as a kid seeing that, that was a lot. Yeah. Well, I I would definitely say that for a death scene, um, the, uh, the most effective one I've ever seen is still uh, Littlefoot's mother. Oh. Because it's just so quiet. Yeah. And so very carefully animated on the musculature of her mouth. It's Bambi 2.0. Right, because Bambi's mother just dies out there. Yeah. He doesn't talk to her again. This is all right here in in this moment. Yeah. Although I will say another powerful death is, um, if we're talking animation... I mean, come on, Finding Nemo. That, that's that opening scene is pretty strong. Yes, I think my dad claims he teared up when that happened because, like, when it's just like it's such quick moments, and then he wakes up, and then it's all gone except for one egg. Right. Like that is subtly powerful. Yes, and everybody equally points out the opening of Up. Of course. Because it's so well structured in that short amount of time. Yeah. P- Pixar has been good at that in in fits and spurts. Um, yes, they have. Do you feel like Pixar is like saving movies that they know are going to be good? Because they feel they're running out. Because they're starting to get like, they're still good. They're still very good. What was their last one? Uh, Incredibles 2? That was good. That was good. Uh, but people have been more critical of it, what? definitely. I've, I've heard harsher criticism for it because it's it's very derivative of the first. It's box office. Other than, again, box office numbers don't say much about the quality of a movie sometimes. Listen, but, here on Framing the Shot, we don't care about box office numbers. I know, because... Never mind. Because I it, do know... It defeats the point of... Uh, it's one of... of uh, 
It does, but on a fun fact, Incredibles two, I, didn't it break a record for animated an animated movie in box office? Like it is I now. I wouldn't know, did it? I th- I thought I heard somewhere that it is now the number one grossing animated movie of all time. I could be wrong, or maybe within a weekend. Within a weekend, it was. It had the biggest animated weekend. I thought I heard that somewhere. That's why it was like such a smash. Well, granted, people waited a while. Yeah, they did. But you can just play the video game and get the same effect. I did want to ask you on an equal front, um, other specific scenes that have affected you in a certain way. Okay. Um, Because I'm assuming you don't get the same, like, spark to the spine as I do. Not quite. Um... Not that I don't enjoy, I don't have a euphoric moment in movies, but the literal description of the spark and the tingling, I don't know if I've ever quite experienced that. But some powerful moments in movies for me, let me think. Because for me, I view like the movie as a whole more often than specific parts. But, yeah, that see, the main thing is like, I really, oh, you know what? So again, I really view the movie as a whole when I see it. And I really just like, if the whole movie was perfectly balanced, kind of what you had said earlier where, with but you described it in a scene where the music, the dialogue, the action, the, every aspect of it. But for me, I, I see that as a whole movie. And is, is it all perfectly placed? And is it all, does everything happen? What feels like at the very right moment? That's what really gets me in those movie magic moments. However, there is one scene that I can think of right now where I remember I got a very tingling sensation. And it was, have you ever have you ever seen Network? Nope, haven't actually gotten around to it yet. Okay, it's quite a good movie. But there's a moment in that movie where this guy is talking to this girl and he's basically breaking up with her. And... They're both in the tele- world of television, more specifically broadcast television, but the girl is also a producer. And at one point, as he's breaking up with her, he starts just saying the dialogue, the direction of what would be the script, but he's just sitting there. He'll be like, man gets up, man looks back, fade out as he, I don't remember the exact line, but he's like, fade out as he turns the doorknob and walks away, never to return. Like, he literally says, like, and it's not out of nowhere, I should say. Like, throughout, like, he he just says the scene that would be written on the script. And you accept it. Because, A, they both work in television and movies, and they've been talking about it. Not in just in that scene, but throughout the movie. But you accept it in this amazing way, because... It's this really great nod to the audience and not just audience, but my kind of audience, people who really love television and film because we know about stuff like that. So when we get that subtle, when for once they get a sort of a a non-cheesy nod to people who want to make movies and write scripts even more specifically, that's just so great. And I just really got into that because... I would have never thought that could have been done where it wasn't extremely terrible. But in that moment, I just loved it. 
I absolutely loved it. That and also that movie had already, that was the straw that happily broke the camel's back because there were so many other moments in that movie that were really powerful for me too, I should add. So it's not like if you just watch that one scene, you're going to be like, wow, probably not. And I think that's fair to say with a lot of those the scenes you described too, that if people watch just that scene, rarely will they get the effect you had. And I'm not just talking about the literal effect, but that, that amazing moment. Because to get that, you have to watch the movie up to that point. Yes, you do. And be invested. There are, but here's a question. Do you think there are moments where they can just watch that scene or just that moment and be entranced and be like, that's amazing? Uh, well, it has to be a scene that has a beginning, middle, and end, mm. which is just like the opening to Finding Nemo. It yes. has to be the the beginning of something that has an ending mm -hmm. in just a small window and that's what most short films will do mm -hmm. that could be it could just be two minutes and it'll affect you profoundly mm -hmm. um i don't know of any individual moment from the middle of a film that does that except maybe i'm sure there are some scenes where a character will be walking into a room, slowly sitting down, and will um, give a speech to another character to uh, That's true. lift their spirits or give them a pep talk. Or like the, um, the famous speech in Lord of the Rings, right before the great battle, when, um, when he's given that speech about one day there will be an enemy that topples the face of man and wipes us out entirely, but today is not that day. Granted, I think it's because everyone has seen that movie, or a lot of people, but I think you can play that that just that moment, and people get a little bit enthralled in yes. some way. So, but it is rare. It is, and that in its own way, or like you. So yeah, scenes that have a beginning, a middle, and end, or speeches, people get down with mm -hmm. because they can relate to a speech, and it's on its own. I know when a movie really gets me if I'm thinking about it a week later, because sometimes when I watch a movie, I enjoyed it. Absolutely. But I leave the theater, I go home and that's about it. But then on a steady, regular basis, I'm not going to say every day, but on a really regular basis, I keep thinking about it. I realize, oh, wait, that movie had more of an effect on me than I thought. Like, I think a good example. So every year I. And tell me if you do this. Do you try to figure out what your top 10 movies of the year were? Do you try to do that? No, I simply don't see enough of them. Okay. okay. I do make an active effort to try that. Um, and I acknowledge if there's ones I haven't seen. Um, but I do try to come up with a top 10 for each year. I've done it, I think, since 2015, I think. And I'll always add them to the list randomly when one catches my eye and in 2018 i had nearly finished my list except i couldn't figure out what the number one spot was going to be and it was basically the end of the year now technically we had entered 2019 but there were some movies you know that had come out in 2018 and i was trying to go see them and i would i would easily count them because they came out in 2018 and would be viable for any 2018 awards and then I saw um, If Beale Street Could Talk, which was directed by Barry Jenkins, who did Moonlight, and uh, was based on a book by, 
you know, I remember the the author's name in a minute. Um, but it was based on a book as well. And I go to see this movie, and I was very impressed. In fact, I like that. I I, I walked out liking this movie more than his first movie, which he is more known for, Moonlight, without a doubt. Moonlight, I think, will ever be in the movie remembered as the movie that beat La La Land in such a significant way because the Academy, you know, realized they were wrong and changed it, like took the award away from the other winners and gave it to Moonlight. I think that'll ever forever be remembered. But I honestly walked out of the out of If Beale Street Could Talk thinking that this was the better movie. And I got stuck with that. And then I got stuck on the thought that once the Academy Awards were announced, how very much ignored this movie was. Because I'm also very fascinated by good movies the the Oscars ignore, which happens all the time. But I'm always really fascinated by that because, you know, the Academy sees themselves as this greater than anything else judge on movies. And then they either pick something that I find confusing or nonsensical, or they ignore a perfectly great movie. And if Beale Street Good Talk was an example of that, it only got two Oscar nominations. It was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, which it actually won. And then it was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, which it didn't win and it should have. Now, regardless, otherwise it was completely ignored. So I was focusing on that for a while. I was really stuck on that idea like, man, why didn't it get... Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography. Like I wanted, I, I wanted it to get nominated for quite a few things. And then it transitioned into this thought of, man, it was ignored. To, man, that was a really powerful moment when, and I'm going to be very vague because I don't want to spoil it for anybody because I really hope people see it. Like when this, the way this one moment was shot was really interesting or the way the music played so perfectly with the movie and how... The, the music they used was very unexpected for the type of movie it was, but it only enhanced it. Um, how, even though there was a lot of narration in the movie, it actually worked to the benefit of the movie. And then I realized, after having these thoughts for like two and a half straight weeks, it was then that I realized, oh, this is my number one. Like, this is my favorite. Like, with all these other movies that I put on the list, I hadn't thought about them nearly as much as this. So now now turning back to the whole point of this, the whole point of where I've gone with this. Yes, people feel movie magic in a very different way. It can be a tingling in the as you described. It's I think you basically said an explosion of mental euphoria, so to speak. But I think what's fascinating about movie magic is no one has the right to put a specific definition on it. No one you will never find I mean, granted, you'll never find those two words in an in a dictionary of any kind. No, because as you said in the front end, which I hadn't considered either, um, movie magic can be the beautiful result from chaos of the the movie making process. Um, it can also be its ability to turn a nobody into a star. Yes. It, it also can be a single moment that is forever uh, immortalized in the consciousness of people. For example, it is fair to say that most Americans know the scene in Jurassic Park where the water jiggles 
from the footsteps of the dinosaur, that scene is movie magic. Yes. That scene, that shot is movie magic. Because everybody parodied it afterwards. Yes. Everybody utilized it as a gimmick because it was so effective. Yeah. It really... So that's the thing. That That's actually a thing. Movie magic can be big as the control of chaos and as small as a drop of water. All on celluloid or digital nowadays. Mm-hmm. That's how varied it can be. And to me, that's one of the main reasons why I still want to make movies. Is because I would love to have any expression of that at least once in what I make. If I can have that, then I, I did my job. You've been listening to Framing the Shot, Episode 3, What is Movie Magic? With my guest, Cotton Chivarelli. Join us next time where we'll be conducting our first thought experiment on the podcast. How would you adapt a cartoon to live action? It's a feat many have attempted but few have succeeded in, and the outright stinkers outweigh even the best among them. However, I firmly believe there is always a right way to do things, even if the right way is to not do anything at all. Some things just shouldn't be adapted, but it's still fun to imagine what could be. Thanks again for tuning in. If you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to see discussed on this show, please be sure to leave a comment or send a message through my social media links. There are so many incredible aspects of the filmmaking process that need deeper discussion. So I hope you'll come along for the ride. And that's a wrap, everybody. We'll see you next time.